Welcome to the Rise to the Challenge podcast. Joy today, he's an actor, performer, presenter, author, and entrepreneur. It's Tyler Foley. How are you doing today, Tyler? Oh, I'm doing good, Alex. How are you? Doing so good. We're so excited to have you on the show to talk about your rise to the challenge. What we like to do with all of our guests is go right to the beginning. Talk about where you're from and what did you like doing growing up? Oh, back to the beginning. I was born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And growing up, I loved to perform. I I was cooked on the stage at a very early age. I loved all kinds of performance too. Like I liked magic. I liked puppeteering, uh, general stagecraft, like just acting in general. Um, even reciting poems, like you just name it. And then, you know, all the other regular pursuits uh, of any child growing up in the 80s i played with my transformers like they're going out of style (laughs) lego was you know a constant in my life i I had a real fascination with um uh hamsters my dad got me hamsters when i was like five and those things breed like they're going out of style so you know (laughs) to like one hamster became two hamsters two hamsters became three thousand hamsters it was it was really crazy, but I, yeah, I, those are kind of my hobbies growing up and, and what I enjoyed. Did you have the hamster in the ball that's just rolling around your house? And oh, yeah. Stuff? yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and started to make the little mazes where they could like scurry up and around the wall, which my mom hated, uh, cause she could hear them like, <laughs> and I could hear them at night. Ironically, or, you know, yeah, they, they, I enjoyed I found it calming. Like there was something about, you know, knowing that they were around, but there did get to be a point where there was just, there was just too many of the things and they're, they're cannibals. So they would like eat their young. And oh, that was always, yeah. that was sad, you know, be like, look, mommy had a litter. And then look, daddy ate them all. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, it was educational. You talked about a bunch of different performances and one of those things was ma- magicians and growing yeah. up for me, I'm like, I need to know how they do this, things like that. And then they came out with a show that literally tells all the <laughs> secrets. And then I'm like, well, I guess I'm a magician now, but <laughs> during those times you're looking at all these performances, was that always like, I want to be like that, but you talked about a lot of different styles. So was it hard to just pick one in a way? Oh yeah. The great thing is when I was young, I didn't have to pick one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I got to experiment with a lot of different things. Um, uh, and both, and when I say puppetry, I, I mean like both puppetry and, uh, marionettes, I got to do them okay. both. I actually really enjoyed marionettes. I got, I, um, I remember like, I, I must've been like 10 or 11 and my aunt Terry got me like these really, really complex marionettes that had multiple articulations. So you could move, their arms, you could move their hands, you could move their legs, their uh, hands, arms, and feet. And um, they had little actuators, so you could actually make them blink and talk. So I remember, and I was fascinated by Thunderbirds, the old marionation, um, like the original Thunderbirds from like 1960s. Absolutely was fascinated with that show. I used to try and recreate that. So that was, it was, yeah, you know, I got into all kinds of different things. And, and the nice thing is, is, um, I grew up and all those pursuits were very supported Mm -hmm. by my, um, so there wasn't anything that I couldn't want to get into that they, 
didn't let me. And then my teachers were remarkably supportive too, you know? So I grew up on stage in, in the fine arts, um, performing from a very young age, six years old, I started acting. And, uh, so I was, I was able to explore all these both professionally and then as, as a hobby and magic being the hobby one. I just, yeah, I had magic kids. I think when I started when I was like three or four years old, and then I had the joy in my professional life as I grew up to be involved with uh, larger stage illusions and, you know, being like in a magician's assistant and stuff like that. So that was really cool. I'm jealous. I'm just jealous of that. <laughs> you talked about getting into the fine arts really early. As a kid getting into it, we hear nowadays where it could be sometimes cutthroat, everyone's looking out for themselves. Being a kid in that, how was that for you? Was everyone nice to each other? Was it all, like you mentioned, supportive in your family supporting you? But talk about that from a performer's side. Um, yeah, so as a kid, nobody nobody's mean to a kid. So it was, <laughs> it was, it was really supportive. The meanest, I think I the most negativity I ever experienced was in my early teens and a director was really hard on me and like deservedly so too. Like when I look back on it, I was slacking because I would, I'd been doing it, you know, like when you're, when I was 16, I was, I'd been doing it for a decade. (laughs) (laughs) And this director demanded more of me. And I was having What's wrong with my performance? I thought I was doing a good job. And he was like, no, you could, you can do more and you can do better. And I want to, I expect more out of you. And it's weird too, to be in a leadership position at 16 amongst adults when you're like the 10 year vet. And some people only have two or three years in the, under their belts in their early twenties <laughs> or they're like, they've gotten their BA of fine arts. And they're like, I'm new and shiny. And I'm like, I'm old and jaded and you're 10 years older than me. Um, so uh, that that had a weird dynamic but um no no man growing up especially when i was younger like six seven eight nine ten into my tweens um it was nothing but supportive it, you know and i think a lot of this cutthroat comes from uh a misperception of hollywood actors who get into the business young and their parents are like real stage parents were like if you don't do this, we don't pay our mortgage. And you're like, oh, it shouldn't actually be that way. You know, my daughter is seven years old. We got her into film and she, her first gig was at 11 months old. Wow. And, and she literally stepped away from it for two years. She was like, daddy, I don't want to do it. And we're like, okay, kiddo, <laughs> you don't do it. And then, uh, she was very clear. She was like, I don't want to do it until I can audition in person again. Cause over, you know, yeah. the funny stuff over the last two years, uh, all of the auditions were self-taped and she's like, daddy, I, I don't like playing in the basement. Right. And, and understandably. So her big joy of going out and audition, my joy when I got to do it when I was younger. So I totally understood is you get to go into the audition room. There's other kids there. The casting director takes you in. Parents aren't allowed. No, no, daddy, you don't get to come in with me. I get to go with the casting director and they go and they, they tape and they get to play and just explore and be kids. And, you know, down here, it's daddy's your reader, your casting director, producer, and the camera guy all at the same time. So that's not, that's not fun. And so she's like, I don't want to do it until we go in person. And sure enough, the first in-person audition she gets, yeah, I want to go. Okay. And does she book it? Absolutely. She does. So wow. It's, 
you know, I just, I let her do her thing. And then immediately after that, my agent was like, Kenzie's back. And, uh, and then she sent her out for these two auditions and they were both self tapes. And she's like, I told you, no, I said, no. <laughs> All right. So I had to like phone my agent and be like, I'm so sorry. Kenzie only wants to go to the in-person auditions. My agent's like, there are almost no in-person auditions still. All the casting directors like this stuff. And I'm like, sorry. How it is. So yeah, no, I it was it was good for me because I I grew up with that kind of support where my mom would take me to auditions if I wanted to go. If I wasn't feeling like it, she didn't make me go. And I think the majority of the world is like that. Like, there are a lot of kids in the business. There are a lot of kids in theater. There's a lot of kids in film and television, and they're not strung out drug addicts on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard, you know? And I think that's actually a rarity. And a lot of it comes from pressures of having to be this provider for your um, family, or, you know, it's very rare again, that you have performers who become instant superstars in their, in, in childhood and where you get a lot of pressure put on you. And so I can see where that might um, push somebody in a direction. But for, you know, every Corey Haim, there's a Christian Bale, yeah. right? And so, <laughs> or you have people who've stepped away or who've not embraced it. Like um, Haley Joel Osment, you know, like he's he's just doing him. So Ryan Reynolds, for crying out loud, was a, a child star. <laughs> I mean, he started out really young Ryan Gosling and all these guys turned out just fine. So I think it's a, I think it gets skewed because of a couple of people who've gone off the rail. And a lot of that was more societal pressure as opposed to the business. Especially you talked about where we only hear one side of the story, especially outsiders. We only hear the negatives because that's all the media wants to play. And we don't really know the story about it, but for you, you someone that grew up doing in that lifestyle or that industry you give a better interpretation of what really happens and you gave a great example about what goes on because we only hear the negatives and i can admit that i only hear the negative stuff because i'm not in it yeah and see for me it was great like let's let's list the positives i got to explore completely totally different uh people and lifestyles i grew up in a in a very very rural very very conservative yeah part of the country And so, and yet the first wedding that I ever attended was a gay wedding. And that was before they were even legal in Canada or my province. (laughs) So like that, that was, that was to me, that was, you know, that was just a thing. Like there was nothing weird about it. I remember my uncle saying some funny stuff. You're like, wrong. No about those. You know, I what did he say? Going to be pretty lightweight loafers at that wedding, I think was exactly his quote. I was like, oh, hey, hey, easy pal. Those are my friends you're talking about. You know, but beyond that, like, yeah, I got to be exposed to uh, different thoughts, uh, different concepts, different ideas. I got to explore a lot of both sides. So I got a really well rounded um, childhood, which was weird because it was very atypical of most people's childhoods. And a bonus uh, when you are a child performer, especially when you're unionized, um, they have to provide a tutor for you (laughs) and you're only allowed to work a certain number of hours and minutes and stuff like you're, it's very controlled. So, um, you know, I got, I got 
I was, I struggled early on with school, particularly in my first and second grade. Like in my, in the second grade, I was, I was a C student at best, but then I started getting some of this private tutelage. And by the end of the year, I, I won an award for the most improved student in the second grade. And then in third grade beyond, I was straight A's and none of that would have happened if it weren't for theater, because I was actually provided unbelievable one-on-one attention that you wouldn't get in the public system regularly. Sometimes we're asked, what's that dream job of ours? What was the answer to that question for you growing up? Oh, I mean, it morphed. Uh, I, when I was probably five to seven or eight, uh, pilot, I wanted to be a pilot for sure. And, um, towards like the fifth and sixth grade, I became, I, I got my first copy of Jaws, like the actual, um, not the movie, but the actual book. And, uh, I was in love with that story. And then I, I, I wanted to become a marine biologist. I wanted to, uh, particularly if I could study sharks and, and all kinds, not just great whites, but like, you know, everything from little tiny reef sharks to hammerheads, tiger sharks. Like I was, you know, big whale sharks, you know, like I wanted to see them all. I wanted to study. And then, um, you know, the other marine life too, dolphins, orcas, and then, you know, from there, just split off i like the big ones you know i wasn't i wasn't gonna be finding nemo but i definitely <laughs> wanted to like you know study the the really large particularly um aquatic mammals just was fascinated with that and that was a thing for like oh into high school i remember uh, grade 10 um there was a seminar for students interested in marine biology that was put on by the University of British Columbia. Um, and they were trying to get more inland participation because like I'm, I'm landlocked in where I grew up. I'm just North of Montana. So you don't have a lot of kids from Montana who are like, we're usually <laughs> like, I want to play with cattle, you know? And so it was, it was rare and they were trying to cultivate more interest in, um, in marine biology, particularly because it's not, uh, uh, there's a, a misconception that marine biologists only work in the ocean. There's large freshwater lakes. There are rivers. Yep. All of these have marine life, you know, and, uh, and so they were trying to get more, um, draw more into the program. And so I remember 10th grade going to that. My mom setting that up again, you know, you want to talk about an incredible human being who's supported by every whim and wish, <laughs> you know, here I am. You know, I'm like, oh, God, do I have to go to this audition? But man, I really want to study the fishes, mom. And she like hears that and, and, and gets me into that seminar. So I was doing that right up until probably 10th or 11th grade before I was like, no, screw it. I want to become a rock star. <laughs> I was when you were listening to everything, I'm thinking, OK, he talks about his passion for acting in the film in all that industry. But not one mention was anything about wanting to be an actor. It just shows that you can have all these passionate items and you never know what you're going to like or what you're going to do until it's like the final shot clock down. And you're like, okay, I got to make a decision. Where am I going to college and things like that? It just shows it's amazing because marine biologist, actor, pilot, all three completely different. different. Yeah. And ironically, um, in my late twenties, I ended up combining all of them into what was like the dream job for me. And that was, um, running a business that 
specialized in aerial photography. So I got to play with the planes. I got to uh, do a lot of performance in the aspect of I got I did a lot of lunch and learns and training sessions um, for clients to show them, you know, close out meetings and things like that. And so like it just kind of everything kind of blended and 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 gelled. The only thing that I didn't get to do was uh, a lot of bathymetric surveys. So I didn't get to do a lot of the marine stuff, but I got to get in a little bit of it. So, hey, it's still young. You can do you can get into that. Right. Oh, yeah. You know, because I don't have it. I'm not wearing enough hats currently, Alex. <laughs> well, before this, I read off your titles and you're like, is that all? We can add another one there. Perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man, I do. I, 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 I am the definition of jack of all trades, master of none. Like, you know, I, I, I do everything uh, quite poorly. <laughs> <laughs> But I don't even view that as a bad thing because I'm one of those people where if I don't know something, I'm going to learn how to do it because I don't want someone to do it for me unless I have to. I mean, if it's anything science related, don't ask me for it because I ain't going to figure that out. See, and I'm, I've kind of like 50, 50 there's, there's, I'm fascinated with why things are the way they are so i love to do the research but there's a point where it gets so technical that i'm like i just give me the broad strokes like i just i don't i don't need to be an expert in it and uh and it's funny because my wife and my daughter are the exact opposite they want it they want to know and they want to know no and then when they know no they want to know that you know that they know no (laughs) so it's like this deep intrinsic knowledge and and that to me uh is just yeah i'm i'm in awe of them because i'm like good on you because it's not that's not my forte like even you know you want to add one more thing i love to drum i love to drum i love to play keyboards i've always um enjoyed music i really loved music i wasn't kidding you know at there was a point there in my late teens i was in a a band and they're actually juno nominated which is like our version of the grammys and uh you know, that was, that was cool. That was fun. Um, and I was like, Hey, this music thing isn't too bad, but I am, I am again, mediocre at best. You know, I can fill in, I can, <laughs> I can keep, I can keep good meter and good time, but, um, yeah, I, I am by no means a professional drummer. I know some really good guys and what's worse, I'm Canadian. So, you know, greatest drummer ever lived is, is Canadian Neil Burt. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Neil. Rest his soul. So, looking at your entire acting career, is there a job that you had that is memorable for you? Oh yeah, door to door. When I got to work with um, William H Macy, Bill, and uh, Dame Helen Murren, the Dame Helen Murren. That was that was like when I look back on all of the jobs that I've had. And I've done some really cool things. You know, a lot of people are like, Hey, you were in Freddie versus Jason. I'm like, yeah, well, I would, I have got a credit in Freddie versus Jason. <laughs> <laughs> you blinking miss me in Freddie versus Jason. Uh, but that's like the one that pe- most people tend to gravitate to. Cause right. Like I got to meet Robert Eglin and, and I really did get to interact with the character, Freddie Krueger, which is super cool. Um, but it, the job satisfaction was kind of like, it was, a, it was a thing that I got to do. You know, and it's cool on the resume. People ask about it a lot, but it was, it was, it was literally for me, it was a job where the doing door to door with Bill and Helen, um, it's the first time I felt like 
like a movie star. You know, I had um, normally because I'm a day player. So like I come in, I say like one, two, three lines over the course of a day, two, three, five. I had a really fun gig on a TV series called Jeremiah where I got to work with the late Luke Perry and uh, Malcolm Jamal Warner from the Cosby show. And that was like, that was, that was cool. And there was like, it was multiple weeks of mm-hmm. filming for me. Cause I was in a couple episodes and uh, you know, that was, that was fun. But it's, again, I, you know, I had like this, this tiny little trailer that the, they call it the honey wagon. And it's like this, <laughs> this little tiny stick bank of stick dressing rooms that are smaller than prison cells. And then the, the toilets are with them too. So like oh. there's, usually a wafting smell of sewage that comes through oh. your dressing room. And you're like, hmm, so it smells like a teamster had a good lunch today. It's usually what it feels like. And, but when I did door to door, I had this double wide trailer and it was, it was the star trailer. And so like I had, not only did I have my own bathroom, my bathroom had a shower and a tub. Oh. And I had like, it had double bump outs and I had like this big closet and like this eating nook area and like couches and like my own little kind of bedroom area that I could go and relax in. Not that I needed it. I was there for a day. Like I was literally <laughs> over the night, but Hey, it was there. It was there if I wanted it. Um, and I remember Bill coming in. Um, he's for those who aren't familiar door to door is about the real life story of bill porter who was a door-to-door salesman with cerebral palsy so um and then not only that but it tracks the course of his life from like 1950 to 1990 give or take so it's 40 year span so not only did um bill have to get into uh character makeup to to give him a more physical appearance uh, of uh bill porter but he also had to age makeup and and um he came in in between makeup uh, setups, so he was going from old Bill to young Bill. Kind of came in, and he's like, "Hey, hey, you're Tyler. How are you?" And I'm like, "I'm okay." He's like, "Yeah, no, I'm so glad you could do this." I'm like, "Me too." <laughs> and he's like, "Hey, uh, I heard you play drums." I'm like, "Yeah, where the did you hear that?" <laughs> I'm like, "You're William H Macy. You're Fargo. Why are you talking to me?" And, uh, and he's like, yeah, um, I'm learning to play the guitar. Would it be cool if I came in and jammed with you? I was like, wow, dude, man, this is your show. You come do whatever you want. So I got to jam with William H. Macy. I got to hang out with Helen Mirren on set. I had my like name on the back of the, of the set chair, you know, so I had my, my, and that's like, I, you never get that. And for me, like, I'm again, I'm a day player. I had like four lines in that show and name bar across the back and then um helen murin was nominated that year for the golden globe for door to door and when you know how they play the scene the setup they're like and nominated for door to door helen murin and then they play like the a little teaser uh teaser trailer uh the scene that they played for that was the scene between me her and bill in the diner and so i was like i'm like (laughs) like it was just i've never felt more job satisfaction or felt more aligned with the universe or felt like i was in the right spot at the right time doing the right thing like even to the point where i even remember the audition 
I remember knowing when I walked out of the audition and it's rare for an actor. When you walk out of an audition, you're usually like, oh, I could have totally done that different or I should have made that choice. Or sometimes like even when you feel good about it, you're like, well, that was good. I hope I get it. I walked out of that door to door audition. I remember having to come back. My, I, my mom was actually in town and I had to go from one audition. I was auditioning for Carrie and I had to go from the Carrie audition at the studio to this hotel conference room up on the North shore. It was a weird place for them to be doing an audition. It was a hard thing for me to get to. And, uh, and again, I had my mom in tow. <laughs> She's like, visiting, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, mom, I got, you didn't have to hold on. And I got to go do this thing. And I remember running lines with her in the car and then getting into the audition, doing it and walking out knowing I was like, I just knew I was going to book it. Like, I I, just, I could tell from the way that the the producer was reacting. I could tell just from the, just the look in the reader's eye and the casting director. Like I knew, I knew I nailed it. So like everything about that from audition to film day and beyond with the Golden Globes, movie star. I, <laughs> and I, you know, there's a reason I retired very shortly after that because there was like, I can't top this. How do you get better than this? I'm never... I, unless I win an Oscar, this is this is this is my pinnacle right here. Speaking of job satisfaction, looking at it, do you feel that you can look back and say I did everything that I wanted to do, or do you wish that there could have been like an opportunity, or maybe theater or Broadway? I'm just thinking about all the different types of acting that you wish you could have gotten to do before transitioning to the next chapter. Uh, yeah, so I would have loved to have done a Broadway play. In fact, I'm I'm there. I'm helping produce a musical right now that I want to see on Broadway. I don't have the connections to get this piece to Broadway, but the the show deserves a Broadway audience. It's called The Gardener. It's written by uh, an unbelievably talented playwright, Marin Burnham. Uh, professionally, she goes by Marin Ord. Uh, she actually wrote um, her her when she was in her teens, she wrote a pop song that ended up being played on the TV show Felicity. Like that's this, this girl oozes talent and just her musical gift is unbelievable. And she's written this play. Like it makes me cry. I, I workshop it and I cry. I hear things about it. I cry. I hear the music. Like right now I'm having to, I'm looking for um, sponsorships uh, for the, the workshop, the basically the regional staging of it that we're going to do. And so I'm like playing the music for uh, potential investors into it and, and um, in people who, who might want to get involved in um, promoting it. And uh, every time I end up playing the music, I'm like, and this, this is where they see each other after years of being apart. <laughs> I just like, I'm like sobbing like a baby every time I think of it. Like I'll be having a shower. And the music will start playing in my head and I'll like tear up. It's just, it's awful. But she's just so talented and deserves to see Broadway. So I would, I would have loved to have done a Broadway show. I also did a pilot for um, a TV show that if it had got picked up, would have been um, like a five day a week gig doing this. Um, it was, it was like, you gotta remember this was like late nineties and um pentium chips on computers had just come out and so it was like a kid's tech show about like overclocking 
your processor and, and getting, do you, or don't you get a video card? The answer now is obviously yes. But at the time, like it was the video card wasn't always necessarily a thing that got put in. So anyway, you'd review tech stuff and video games and all this stuff. And I did the pilot and it was so much fun. And I wanted that gig so bad. And they ended up shopping it around and it got purchased, but the company that purchased it purchased the idea of the show not the show itself and so then it went on and got this other iteration we originally called it glitch and i think it got renamed something and recast and shot out of a totally different city i filmed it in vancouver and ended up being shot out of toronto uh and so that that was always one where i was like oh i would kind of like to have done you know where i was the star because i've done series regular things before where i had recurring roles on a couple of different shows uh jeremiah being one of them an mtv project called uh together was another one but i never did i I never was like you know i didn't have that series regular people knew who i was and and so i would have those are if i had any regrets that would be it but i also don't know that i would have had the talent to support it like yeah it's a you know it's it's a lot when you do that and i know i know the auditions that i do i know uh the roles that I land regularly, I kind of know where my niche is and my niche is not a uh, series regular. It is definitely a day player. Does writing or being a part of this musical or this job that you have, does that take up a lot of your time now or do you, are you able to spread it out and be able to do everything you want? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, uh, producing this show is um, one step up from a volunteer position. Because it's it's a it's a regional theater production, and you know, I have more expertise in the theater than Marin does, and so that makes me the executive producer. And I'm just I'm just lending some connections and some know how to get it to at least be seen by bigger, better people than me, mm-hmm. so that it can start to gain the traction that it needs to be picked up by somebody else far more uh financially set off than me far more connected than me so that eventually this thing can hopefully find its way to new york because the show i i'm telling you it could win a tony it would win a tony if people would just hear it and see it like it is i believe in this show in a way that i and i've i've done i've been in theater now coming up 40 years and i can honestly say it is the best musical I have ever seen or heard in my life. And I was in ragtime when ragtime didn't win the Tony because, you know, Disney put up <laughs> a wow show with the lion King. Um, and I, I still, to this day, I still think ragtime should have won, but that's neither here nor there. Um, you know, I I've been in other musicals, a classical musicals. Like I was in uh staging of carousel. I've done, um my fair lady music man you know some of these staple classics uh, i was in chicago um un- unbelievable shows this is the best musical i have ever heard been involved with known and it needs to be known like those other ones that i've just name dropped because they they pale in comparison and i recognize what that means when i say it you know even like wicked has nothing on this <laughs> book of mormon 
what do Trey Parker and Matt Stone even know about musicals? Nothing. No. Marin Ord is the name that you need to know. And The Gardener is the show you need to see. During this time, did you ever have anything personal that came up that kind of possibly maybe affected your career or anything? Or were you able to kind of keep the two kind of lives separate where your professional life didn't really interfere with your personal life or anything in your personal life didn't interfere? Because we kind of talked about earlier where people in the industry, you never know which way it's going to go. But did yeah. you have anything personally for you that kind of played an effect? Well, sort of. So I got into film and television and, and theater initially. Um, after my father passed away, it was kind of a, a, a way for me to um, process grief, especially because my dad passed away when I was six. So, you know, you're it's really too, you're too young at that point to really process what death means the finality of it um uh even to understand what mortality is like it's it's a really abstract concept even for us as as adults let alone six years old Mm -hmm. so um that kind of kicked me off but i do remember very clearly um uh running away from a lot of things uh when i was about 24 25 i'd broken up with a long-term girlfriend and uh, she had a, a just an amazing uh son and i'd kind of grown up watching him grow up and so when we broke up i was really only staying around in that relationship because i was i was absolutely in love with her son like you know he i i just that and he's grown up to be an incredible human being too um you know, like even little things too. Like I was a goaltender and he, I, so he watched me play goal and then he became a goaltender after me and her had broken up. And I like secretly, I was like, how much influence did I have in that? Was that a me thing or a him thing? And, you know, I kind of like on the peripheral tried to pay attention to what he was doing. And, and he's just, I mean, he's, he's grown up to be an incredible young man. And, but when we broke up, I, I not only like, I quit acting. I, I stopped living in the city. I moved provinces. Like I moved halfway across the continent just to get away. Um, really kind of changed who I was. It's weird because my wife met me just after that. Like I, I basically tied up my little life in Vancouver as an actor and a performer in a bow, put it in a closet, labeled it, do not open until (laughs) put it away. Right. And moved to uh, Toronto and just completely and totally reinvented myself. You know, I, I started working for a national airline. First of all, I started working. I had never done that. I was work for somebody. I've always worked for myself. And so that was, that was weird. You know, you have a job and punch in a unionized job, no less. And, you know, working with rough and tumble dudes, as opposed to people who sing and dance, like it was like, like complete 180, complete overhaul. Um, And so when my wife met me, she knew me as like a ramp rat from an airline. And it was like later on, you know, where she kind of like discovered this other side of me <laughs> and, and 
and she to this like for, it was for a, a real long time we've been together now uh 16 years wow and um and she's like no 18 18 years no we've known each other 18 years we've been together 16 and it was only in like the last like two or three years where she's really gotten to see the first time that she got to even see me perform or do anything um, was the first musical that I did for Marin, which is how I found out about her and her amazing talent. She'd written this. It's just a, like a, a kid show uh, called Feather Pen Fairy Tales, but for just, just a kid show, some of the best orchestration I've ever heard in my entire life. I had so much fun being in that show and I got to play the villain because I always play the villain. And <laughs> so, you know, I, Jen and my daughter got to come and see me on stage, singing, dancing, acting. And I remember my mother-in-law coming in and watching it. And afterwards, my, I, I love my mom. She's absolutely no filter. And she goes, I had no idea you could actually act. <laughs> Thanks, mom. She's like, and you sing really good too. Did you know you could sing? Like, no, no, this was a shock to us all. Don't you worry about that, Linda. Anyway, it, it, it entertained me, but my wife was like, you really enjoy this. I'm like, you have no idea. This was this was my life for over two decades. And uh, and then, you know, to see my daughter get into it too, like that, I don't care if I ever act again. I don't actually care if she ever gets on a set again, but to watch her when she enjoys it. she Like I said, she filmed this commercial a uh, month a bit ago. And um, we were just at her, actually her parent, uh, teacher conference it's a student-led conference so we the teacher doesn't do anything we come and, and and my daughter you know shows us around and shows us all the things we're reading through her journal and uh, uh she had you know the day her commercial came out as today my commercial comes out i'm so excited wow you know, like like things like that i'm like oh man like i i get it i'm proud you know and because the last couple of times her commercials have come out she's been too young to, to know or care mm-hmm and then she took her hiatus. And so this is like, I think the first time where she's really been able to comprehend the fact that, Hey, I'm going to be on TV, you know, and somebody's going to see me and I get to do this thing. So yeah, I'm excited for. Was it hard kind of keeping that other identity away from your wife at that time? So the funny thing is, is it was, you know, I wasn't trying to keep it away. Like it wasn't like it was this closeted secret, like, Oh, just, don't mention he's an actor, you know, yeah. like I, it was, it was, it was just this side of me that you never saw. Like, even though like I, I still had headshots and resumes and I have an IMDb, like if you Google me, it's the first thing that comes up, uh, or it was for a long while. Now it's my book, but that's <laughs> neither here nor there. Um, but you know, that like that used to be like when you Google, actually, it's funny because my old roommate from Toronto is currently working with another dude named Tyler Foley. And she thinks it's hilarious because she texted me the other day. She's like, yeah, I'm working with this Tyler guy. I'm like, that's bizarre. And then they got into chatting about how she knew this other Tyler Foley. And he goes, you mean the actor guy? And she's like, you know him? <laughs> no, it's just, I Google my name and this dude shows up all the time he's like the first like 30 pages i've always wondered who he is so i actually got to meet this other tyler foley through my old roommate and and have a laugh 
theoretically somehow we've got to be related because all foley's in north america are related but <laughs> yeah i mean it's just you talked about like it wasn't a secret or anything it's like i kind of view that for me it's like oh he's a podcast host it's like okay it's not like i'm hiding it out there it's everywhere on my social media maybe i just don't talk about it or yeah. even the people on like i interview they don't know that i actually have a real job where they think this is my job but it's like that is nothing like you don't want to hear me talk about that but for you yeah. it's like it wasn't like you're hiding it. it's just it didn't come up at that time and you were in yeah. a new chapter in your life and if it did happen to come up it happened Exactly. Yeah. And it just, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, I don't walk around handing out business cards that say <laughs> Tyler Foley, child star, you know, like, it's like, Hey, I wasn't a child star. I was a child performer, but you know what I mean? Like, it's like, I, it just, it's not a thing that is prevalent for me. It's fun every once in a while. Like my, um, my wife's best friend and, uh, her maid of honor at our wedding, it, is married to probably the world's largest cinephile, uh, Pete, who is just a, a cool, cool dude. And like, he's, he's like the exact opposite of me. Cause he's like, he goes to gym, works out, you know, he's got bad gains every day. And like, I like, I will make fun of Pete all day long. Cause Pete will make fun of me all day long. Cause we are completely different people. Um, but he has this massive movie collection. In fact, uh, Amy, who's his wife, met him at Rogers Video, which is a, you know basically the Canadian equivalent of Blockbuster. Okay. And uh, you know, like he, he he's he's all things movie. Like he loves movies, particularly action films. Because he's big. <laughs> My favorite thing that I ever got to do, actually, um, one of the jobs that I have is putting on large conferences. And one of the large conferences that I put on happened to have Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, as the keynote speaker. And so I was able to get Pete, not only uh, front row seats, but um, front row seats right beside Arnold's family and get him backstage passes to meet Arnold and get his picture taken with him. And I don't owe Pete a birthday or Christmas present for the next decade because of that. (laughs) That's super awesome. But he's just this massive movie buff. And every once in a while, because he like he'll watch a movie a night sometimes too, because he watches them while he works out, and that's all he does. Um, he texted me the other day. He's like, Yeah, I'm, I'm it's Halloween. I'm going through all the versions of Carrie. Nice acting. <laughs> you know, and he'll his his because uh it's a line from uh Team America World Police. Use your acting, Gary. And so he'll like he'll say that to me. He's like, use your acting, Tyler. Or he'll be like, you really used your acting there. And it, he thinks he's being clever and funny. And I'm like, dude, you don't even know what you're saying. But that's okay. And I love you. You know, I, I know when you say it, it's kind of like in The Princess Bride, when Wesley said, as you wish, you really meant I love you. I know what Pete means when he says, use your acting, Tyler. <laughs> as an author, why did you want to write? Because my agent told me to. <laughs> Hey, I mean, that's a good answer. I will say honest, honest answer. I, um, I, I've actually been writing for a very long time. I think the first, my first published work was a poem that I wrote when I was in like fourth grade. I had a short story published in an anthology when I was in the sixth grade. I've always enjoyed writing, but I never thought of myself 
as an author. And literally, I um, I wanted to get on bigger, larger stages. And um, my speaking agent said, you know, I you can't do some of these stages that you want to do if you don't have a book. I had a training course put together. I had all the all the things, but she's like, you you need to have a book. And I went, okay, let's write a book. And, and literally I started writing one on safety because I have, you know, when I'm not actor Tyler or speaker Tyler or author Tyler, I am safety professional Tyler. I run a, a safety consulting firm called Total Buy-In. And I'd originally written a book around safety, but I was like, there's so many books on this written by people who know so much more about this that I don't even want to publish this thing. So it's, you know, it's a written manuscript. It's been published in that it's gone through Kindle, (laughs) but, but it's not, it's not like professionally uh, published by a traditional publisher. But when I wrote the power to speak naked, it was literally prompted by a whole bunch of people saying, you need to do this thing. You want to get onto it. And it was actually a thing that I felt confident that I could write about. I mean, you know, 37 years on stage. Surely I know a thing or two about at least stage presence, you know, yeah. right. I've got, I've, I've got at least that going for me and, and the technicalities behind blocking and showing up and, and being able to speak a little bit more powerfully. So that was, that was really the driving factor and the driving force behind writing the book was I wanted to be on bigger stages. My agent was telling me, you're not going to get the bigger stages if you don't have the book. A lot of the promoters that I know that I work very closely with, including the one that brought um, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, to Canada and that I got to help out my buddy with, uh, all said, listen, we want to help you. Can't do it if you don't have a book. And I was like, well, if that's my only barrier to entry, I can crush out a book pretty darn quick. And, and that's what I did. I just, you know, I literally spent a couple weeks, wasn't even months or anything, just a couple of weeks, uh, compiling old training videos that I had putting together some other thoughts. The more fun process has been now that the, um, book has been published. I'm actually doing a revised version of it because, you know, if you're not embarrassed about your first book, you published it too late. I, I read this and I go, Ooh, Oh, I'm glad that was the number one bestseller. I would buy it. <laughs> and so it's, it's been, it's been fun. It, you know, for the people who enjoy it, they really do enjoy it, but there's more that I could add to it. And I've always felt that it was incomplete. And so to be able to get to go back and, and tweak it and revise it, that's been fun, but that's actually been a harder process than the initial writing of the first manuscript. We've talked about professional Tyler throughout this interview, but now let's get into personal Tyler. Is there anything you want to accomplish personally that is on your, the traditional way of saying bucket list, but sometimes people have goals that they want to accomplish, but personally, not a professional goal. Yeah. I want to get my private pilot's license. It's a thing that I've wanted to do since I was like 12, even before that, you know, Um, I remember I almost almost joined Air Cadets because you could get your private license uh, before you're 18 if you joined Air Cadets. But then I realized that it was a military organization. And I was like, I don't military. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I support troops. I, 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 I'm incredibly grateful for their service because it's something I'm not willing to do. So I recognize just how hard of a sacrifice that is. Um, and so I was like, I don't want 
I want to, I want to, I don't want, no, I'm not going to join the cadets. I don't want to have to polish boots just to be able to fly. And so it's been a thing that always got pushed off. And then like when I ran my first company InView solutions, we had three planes and I had access to pilots and we ran it out of a regional airport that had a flight school right below us. Like I could literally walk down the stairs to the flight school. And I kept saying, Oh, you know, when things slow down a little bit and we make a little bit more money, I'm going to go and get my pilot's license. And then that business collapsed. I never did make more money with it. Oh. Now I don't work conveniently right by an airport. And so I didn't get it. Like when I was working for the airline, I wanted to get it. And I had a buddy who was a pilot. And, and I actually have a few friends who are not only trained pilots, but trained instructors who have always said, if you want to do it, let's get involved. One of my best friends, Chris Baisley, could teach me. Another friend of mine, Eric Fussell, could teach me. Uh, like there's so many people who I have available to me. I have the access and the resources. I just haven't done it. And so that's a thing that I, I definitely want to, to remedy sooner rather than later. And the other one is I want to um, get certified for deep dives because I, I've, again, I'm like, I'm fascinated by marine life and I would really, really, really like to be able to do something more than just recreational diving in Cancun on my vacation. <laughs> See, I'm telling you, when I do these interviews and you look at where what you thought about when you're growing up to what you are at now, it all circles back to each other. Oh, yeah. We talked about the marine life. Um, we talked, we made the joke earlier about the title. So if we talk in the next few years, I need yeah. to hopefully have pilot under a new title of yours. So yeah. that's yeah. going to be my expectations. The next time we talk is pilot is going to be added to the list. I, I like actually, it. there was an airport nearby. My grandmother got me like a certificate for a free lesson. Mm -hmm. And I did that and it was so much fun. But then just hearing like the criteria of, how many hours you have to get, how yeah. often. And I'm like, this is like a full-time course or like a full-time yeah. job just to do it. And I kind of just lost interest. But then I look at photos and I'm like, I wish I did that more. But when you said the deep sea thing, that is more me. I'm a water yeah. guy. I live in the Midwest. So it yeah. takes me hours just to get to an ocean. But that would be so much fun because I watch all those TV shows where it's like about water and stuff. And I'm like, I want to do that. Where do I? Yeah. Start? Yeah. And that's the thing. Like I watch these shows, you know, one of my favorite shows to watch my, my and probably my biggest addiction is um, Curse of Oak Island, because I just I've I've grown up knowing the story. My father was from Nova Scotia. I've known about Oak Island basically all of my life. Um, I just I'm fascinated with the idea of, of hidden treasure for one, like pirate treasure, like hidden mysteries and secrets like, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> As much fun as I have, like I even know the guys who did the seismic survey. Like I know the guys from Eagle Surveys who actually did the seismic survey of that island because they're out of, from Calgary. And, um, but I watch um, the the divers go down and, you know, most people would be like, I'm never going to do that. You stick me into a, a six foot or eight foot case on and on a bosun chair and like zero visibility not for me. And I'm going, that's so cool. I want to do that so bad. And then my wife started watching this other show about these guys who do deep sea doubt, uh, deep sea salvage, but like not cool salvage, like not like sunken pirate ships, like, you know, Marine vessel goes down and you have to get like, ore out of it. And I was like, 
oh, that'd be cool. I would love that. Just the technicality of it would fascinate me. I love the feeling of weightlessness. Again, I love being in the in and around the ocean. The funny thing is that I'm an absolute wimp when it comes to cold water. Hate it. Hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it, hate it. To the point where I actually have started doing cold showers because when my daughter was four, we went out to one of my favorite lakes in um, in the mountains, the middle of the of the interior of British Columbia. And it's actually a warmer lake. It's called Skaha Lake. And all she wanted to do was play with me. And I was like, daddy doesn't, daddy doesn't do cold water. And I remember seeing a whole bunch of pictures of my wife and her playing and, and just the smile on her face, just the pure joy and the innocence of it. And me feeling that I completely and totally missed out on the experience because I was afraid of cold water. So literally that, that was um, the beginning of July. And both of our birthdays, my daughter's and mine's the end of July and on my birthday, I kind of made a commitment to myself that I was going to take a, a cold shower every day. And I've been doing that now for three years just so that I can be like, no, cold water will not stop me from doing things. And that's the thing. Like I, I love to dive, but I dive like tropics. Like what, the guys laugh at me when I go to like, uh, you know, Bahamas and I'm like, do you got a dry suit? <laughs> I won't I won't dive in a wetsuit. And it could be like, you know, the most the the warmest water on the planet. And I'm like, yeah, uh, dry suit me, please. It's just it's just dumb. The final question I'll ask you for someone that's listening to this interview based on your journey and experience, what tips or advice would you give them to overcome obstacles, accomplish their goals, and rise to the challenge? Probably that we drastically overestimate what we can do in a day or a week and tremendously underestimate what we can do in a year or five or 10. And every challenge has a solution. Doesn't matter how big or small. But a lot of times it takes a lot of perseverance to get there, yep. you know, and I think of Sir Hillary Edmund, you know, theoretically the first human to scale Mount Everest, stand and summit it, stand at the top. He's just the first one that's documented. You know, there, there's slowly more and more evidence that you know, human beings have been doing that trek for millennia. And uh, the Sherpas, particularly from Nepal, they know how to get there, you know. So there's somebody that was that was helping them. So nothing is insurmountable, you know. And if you don't know how to do it yourself, very much like having a Sherpa to get you to the top, relying on the expertise of people who've been there before somebody has solved it. Somebody has done the thing that you want to do. Yep. And, you know, you'd be surprised at how willing human beings are to help you do the thing you want to do. If you just ask, you know, one of the, you know, it's, it becomes a sense of joy and pride. So I guess it's multiple, it's multifold advice. You know, find somebody who can support you, who can mentor you, who can tutor you, who can teach you. Don't try to learn it all at once. You know, if I want to get my pilot's license and I do, 
I'm not going to get it overnight. As you pointed out, like I need a hundred hours and then I need 1500 hours. And then like, it takes time. That's not going to come overnight, but the more I chip away at it, you know, I even like, this is, this is totally dumb. I was, I'm doing this learning French again, as a Canadian, theoretically, we speak two languages and <laughs> I, I speak one poorly. <laughs> so, you know, I, I'm, I'm trying to learn French particularly because my daughter is now going through school. She's learning French. My wife and I want to be able to really help and support her with it. And, um, this app that I'm using challenges you to get like 10,000 points using this one particular type of thing. You can only get up to 40 points doing it. And I'm like, Ugh, you know how long <laughs> it takes to do that? Like, cause I can do the math in my head. Like I know just how, just how many times I have to do this thing. But I started to say to myself, well, do two a day. It's only 80 points to a day, but I do two a day and I get those 80 points. Even if I only do it five days a week, it's 400 points, you know? And if I do that for 10 weeks, that's 4,000 points. Now I'm almost halfway there and it's only 10 weeks, mm -hmm. right? The 10,000 looks insurmountable. I don't even want to try, but if I challenge myself to just do two a day, 25 weeks down the road, I'm done. That's not even a, that's not half a year, you know, and, and it's breaking them down into those micro chunks, I think is, is the quickest and fastest way to be able to tackle any challenge and rise to it. Well, Tyler, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about your rise to the challenge. You're inspiring so many people and we're excited to see what the future looks like for you. Well, thank you so much, Alex. It was my joy being here. Tune in next time to hear my next guest talk about their rise to the challenge. Remember to follow and subscribe to all major audio platforms and make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel to see the full-length episode in video format. What path do you take to accomplish your goals? You decide.